Howdy, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Work Green, Earn Green. I'm Jay Tipton. Last week, we took to the waters of Louisiana to learn how the state's bluest resource, H2O, is impacting green jobs. This week, I'm hitching up the old wagon and headed towards the mountain west of the country to the beautifully diverse landscape of Colorado, where people say howdy. I love that you came in saying howdy. I haven't heard a good howdy in a while. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's sort of standard greeting out here. So, Colorado, what's going on there in the green job game? Well, as it turns out, quite a lot. Coloradans from all corners of the state have come together to press forward on major green topics like clean energy, electric vehicles, green tech, ecotourism, and a list of others. In some ways, this state is making it seem easy. So I gotta know, how did Colorado make this happen? What are they doing different? To get the inside scoop, I spoke with Jeff York at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Jeff is an associate professor of entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business. He's also the chair of the university's division of social responsibility and sustainability and the research director for the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship. Jeff, man, is there anything you don't do? You're making the rest of us look bad. To get the full picture, Jeff starts by giving me a lay of the land. Colorado is, is a microcosm of the United States. I mean, people don't realize this. They think about Colorado and they think about, you know, the Rocky Mountains and where I live, which is here in Boulder and ski towns and those kinds of things. But that's only the western half of the state. The eastern half of the state is basically Kansas. It's identical. It's agricultural. It's rural. It's very politically conservative. So in that regard, Colorado really does mirror sort of the demographics of the larger U.S., What makes it different, I think, is that our approach to particularly wind energy in the 90s and the 2000s and other industries after that has been about creating what Governor Ritter would call a clean energy economy. Now, not to say it's never been divisive. If you're not familiar with Colorado, Colorado is a fossil fuel state. We have tons of hydraulic fracturing. We have tons of historic coal mining. You know, we have a lot of activity that happens here that's related to fossil fuels, but clean energy jobs are growing about five times faster than fossil fuel related jobs. All right. So much like Pennsylvania and Louisiana, Colorado also has a rich history in coal and oil. So why are green jobs growing so much faster in Colorado? You have this confluence of people caring about nature, being enthusiastic about outdoor sports, and at the same time, being very minded towards entrepreneurship and innovation. And part of that comes from the university ecosystem in Colorado. And frankly, a lot of successful people that come here because they've sold businesses and then they are surrounded by nature. And so you have this desire for successful business people to support the growth of a clean energy economy in Colorado. Jeff just gave me the recipe to Colorado's secret green sauce, a dash of outdoor recreation, a pinch of research institutions, and a healthy sprinkle of entrepreneurship. But how did these all come together to drive green growth? Well, back in 1997, a Boulder-based environmental organization helped design a program that offered utility customers the option to pay a little extra for electricity generated from renewable sources. Surprisingly, the demand for this program exceeded supply, and utility companies began to purchase energy from wind farms to meet it. 
Fast forward to 2004. After years of back and forth, state legislators failed to pass a renewable energy standard into law. Amendment 37 was put to a public vote, which, if passed, would require Colorado utilities companies to generate a portion of electricity from renewable sources. The initiative passed with 53% of the vote, establishing Colorado as the first state to have a voter-backed renewable portfolio standard. It was the first ballot initiative that just simply requires the utilities in the state to produce a certain percentage of their energy from renewables in order to have a license to operate. What happens is once you have that requirement, like, hey, you know, you've got to comply or you'll be punished, that is really often necessary to get these industries going historically. And once you do that, that reduces the uncertainty so organizations can enter in and entrepreneurs can enter in and start to make business plans that make sense and draw investment. And once that business community gets going now, I think most people in Colorado view it as these environmental measures create jobs and they create industries and they help our economy. And nobody has a problem with that. I guess the old saying is true. Money talks. On that note, it's time to take a break. Coming up, we're going to hear how these energy bills are helping Colorado's budding entrepreneurs pay their bills. Hmm, too corny? All right, how about this? Coming up, we're going to hear how energy bills are helping Colorado businesses keep the lights on. Ugh, don't like that one either, huh? What about coming up? We're going to hear how energy bills have empowered light bulb moments for, you know what, forget it. I give up. Stay tuned because there are more bad puns after the break. The way we work and the skills we need to do our jobs are changing fast. What do you need to know to keep up? And how do we as a society ensure everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in today's workforce? I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Join me each week on the Work in Progress podcast as I go one-on-one -on -one with the innovators and decision makers who are helping us navigate our way through these challenges. Welcome and howdy back. Wait, did I say that right? That kind of felt weird. Let's move on. Before the break, we learned how voters pushed forward a policy that positioned Colorado as an early adopter of clean energy. And this proved enticing for entrepreneurs who saw this new renewable standard as an amazing opportunity. We're fortunate enough here, specifically in Boulder, but in Denver as well, a lot of entrepreneurs that successfully exit a company or two and have the wealth and luxury of living anywhere they want, move here. And they start looking around for things to invest in. They're embedded in this ecosystem of people that really care about addressing climate change. So the state's policy made it prime real estate for both new and experienced entrepreneurs to build businesses. Take, for instance, Jeff Wilkins, a serial entrepreneur who has successfully launched seven startups to date. In 2015, Jeff chose to set up shop for his next venture in Denver due to the software development talent available and because the city didn't carry the same high price tags as Silicon Valley. That venture is better known as Modally a property and HVAC technology company. HVAC is typically a slang. HVAC or HVACR is the technical representation because it stands for heating, ventilation, air conditioning, cooling, and refrigeration. That's the R. Whoopsies, HVAC. I stand corrected. 
That was Matt Salee, Vice President of Sales at Modaly, which was acquired by Daikin in 2017 after being in business for just two years. Modaly is a division of Daikin Manufacturing. Daikin is the world's largest HVAC manufacturer. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait just a gosh darn second there, Jay. Aren't heating and cooling two of the biggest energy suckers there are? What's an HVAC company doing on this podcast? Well, Modaly has developed an efficiency tool that provides clients the ability to calculate their carbon emissions and adjust accordingly. But just who are those clients? Daikin and Modaly work directly with building owners and operators and the largest real estate firms in the United States to to really optimize the way that they manage and think about their HVAC. And so having HVAC as the number one energy user really has a dramatic impact, either positively or negatively, on a building's carbon footprint. So how is Modaly making sure their services are having a positive impact? We leverage our contractor network with our technology platform to really bring together HVAC services and solutions for our clients that they couldn't normally do at an individual property level. Many of these owners and operators have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pieces of HVAC equipment. And being able to plan at a national level how much needs to get replaced versus how much needs to get repaired on an annual basis is a real challenge. So what we do is we bring our technology platform to connect our clients with the best equipment that's out there, meaning the most efficient, and show them how they could increase their sustainability, how they could improve their energy use, meaning lower their energy consumption, and increase the operational performance of the machines by keeping them clean. So are there any green skills Matt needed in order to work at Modally? I focused in on information systems, which was more of a technology degree or the application of technology inside of the business space. And that really was part of the foundation of getting into the build space. I think the backbone of data and data analytics for me was really, really powerful in being able to help large national real estate companies think about sustainability at scale. When you've got hundreds of millions of square feet and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of energy using devices, be it LED lights or HVAC equipment, being able to understand what trends you can see in the data, what data is available and how to really optimize your actions against that for maximum result, either to the bottom line or to the sustainability impact is really where the ability to understand trends and data has really served me well in that space. Man, I'm conflicted. Can a company that helps sell HVAC equipment also be helping the environment? To help answer this question, I phoned my go-to expert friend, environmental consultant, Paula DiPerna. What's so important about what they're doing is that taking what would be conventionally considered to be energy hogs, turning them into energy efficiency operations. So Matilli, I think, is a very exciting company in that it's taking this relatively familiar industrial operation and flipping its purpose from being consumption to efficiency. Exciting? Yes. Important? Most definitely. But is it green? I think you can't get greener than trying to be energy efficient. You can never have too much energy efficiency. Apart from water efficiency, it's probably the greenest thing we could be doing right now. All right. Well, that settles that. So what kind of jobs exist at Modally? We see jobs in the software space, in product management, in software engineering. We have jobs in sales. 
We have large customer service organizations. We also have our finance function. We have our marketing function. We have a broad operational team here. So we sort of cover it all. Okay, so Paula, what do you think? Would you say that the sales and marketing teams at Modally are working green jobs? I mean, if they're selling a lot of those new technologies, they're probably marketing them as greener and getting sales because they're greener. And they're able to employ a lot of people in that new objective. Right. And whether a company is doing that for the greenness of it or the environmental impact of it, the result for us is still the same. Totally. That's why it's so important that the trajectory toward greenness becomes as generalized as possible so that, you know, it's a continuous improvement. And continuous improvement is something Modally makes a point to celebrate. At Modally, we annually have what we call our Carbon Champions Award, which is our biggest and best clients that are able to make meaningful reductions and energy efficiency and sustainability improvements. We presented that this morning at our all-hands meeting, and you could see in the teams that are helping work with the contractor network, that are in the finance department, that are in the HR department, get a kick out of that because they are part of something that is making a difference on the world around them. They are part of something bigger. And it's important to keep that in focus because even though you're not installing a solar panel or wiring an LED light or installing a high efficiency HVAC system, that doesn't mean you can't be part of the industry. You can't be part of the movement. Boom. Matt nailed it. Hearing about all those departments at Modally got me thinking about how many people are actually involved in this. As it turns out, nearly 1 in 50 Colorado residents are working in clean energy. And small businesses are actually the largest providers of clean energy jobs, employing a whopping 90% of the green workforce. Now, did you hear that? That was the noise of my jaw hitting the ground. Since Colorado is home to so many small businesses, I wanted to chat with a few entrepreneurs about how they got their businesses rolling in the Rocky State. (laughs) I warned you there would be more bad puns. First up, Eric Adamson. Eric is the co-founder and CEO of Tortuga AgTech, an automation startup that helps growers by using robots to harvest crops and acquire analytics. Originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, I wanted to know why Eric and his co-founder chose Colorado over California as a place to grow an agriculture business. It's actually a pretty great place to start a tech company of the type that we started, which is a hardware forward integrated technology company. There's a lot of big industry in Denver and Colorado generally around aerospace, defense, manufacturing. So there's a pretty deep pool of engineering talent here. This city has had a huge boom in the last 10, 15 years, but especially in the last five. So even though it's not the Bay, there's still a lot of the same talent, still a lot of the same ambition, better lifestyle for people trying to do something really big. Okay. The outdoors, check. Top tier talent, check. Ambition in the air, check. So far, so good. But Eric failed to mention one other key thing, the cost of doing business. Any new business is going to incur some pretty hefty startup costs, but a robotics company? I'd imagine San Francisco would be a way better place to find investors willing to cough up that kind of dough. Well, I thought wrong. The state and the city have been exceptionally supportive of us as a startup. We won an advanced industries grant from the state of Colorado every year. They give out $250,000 grants to startups. 
We also won a $90,000 contest with the city of Denver, and they helped us try to find real estate. They helped connect us to the city of London, and they've also given a lot of opportunity to city and state for tax breaks for growth and for certain benefits for your employees and for hiring. And it's definitely a major reason why a lot of startups have enjoyed starting themselves in Colorado. Those are some serious investments. So perhaps you're now wondering, what kind of work is Tortuga doing to land them all these grants? We are building agricultural robots that perform critical farm services, starting with things like harvesting, which for many, many decades has been kind of the holy grail of automation that has been very hard to actually achieve. There's a lot of little and big tasks on farm that robots can help with to just alleviate some of the labor pressures. One very clear and obvious example is just there's also certain types of trimming and pruning, which is a job you'd like to do more of, but you maybe don't have enough people to do it. That is super cool. But can robots be helpful to the environment? Robots can help increase yields on farms by picking more accurately, by picking better, and by also giving a bunch of information to the farmer to help them grow their crops in more efficient, more effective ways, to help control pests and climate challenges without having to use as many chemicals. Okay, so robots have some green benefits for sure, but we're here to talk about jobs. Won't those robots be taking jobs away from the workforce? These robots aren't you know, 100% autonomous. Human beings interact with these robots, get them to the right place in the grow, and then they're autonomous once they're there. So that requires people, and that requires people who are on site. And we have the model, which we're working with now with some of our grower customers, of actually training pickers or people who are now pick managers to manage robots instead. And so this becomes an opportunity to skill up people and to train people on a new technology. And it, it helps them to do kind of the same job, but much more ergonomically friendly, much easier. Based off that, it sounds like robots are more like task rabbits. Their role may be green, but can we say the same about the human pickers that are training them? I've still got Paula hanging on the line to help me out. Environmentalism is a work in progress. If you have a farmhand who doesn't think anything about how much pesticide to put on and then becomes aware wow, I've been wasting this, or this robot's telling me to do it differently. There's a learning going on. And I think the learning is definitely something that contributes to the trajectory of from less green to more green. And anything that reduces the use of chemicals on land and avoids the runoff that is contaminating water and you know, leaving aside that might also be poisonous for the worker, anything that reduces that has to be considered green. I'm doing a green thing. And the robot's helping me. I'm the green one. The robot's my helper. And then, of course, building and operating those robots call for even more jobs. We also have a production team, which is basically high-end mechanics who have experience working in manufacturing processes. And that team will grow as we grow our production of robots. We also have an operations team, which currently is kind of a mix of engineering experience, and you know, love for farming, and some operational experience. Okay, so now we've got all these teams in place to design, program, and build robots that come with some green benefits. But does that mean their makers are working green jobs? What do you think, Paula? Help me unpack this. 
the fact that they're producing the robots, putting them out there for a purpose, which is to make farming more sustainable in favor of avoiding waste and overuse of chemicals. I think you're justified in saying that it's a green effort. You're illustrating a way that any company can be greener. With all these green shoes to fill, where is Eric finding the talent he needs to keep Tortuga running? We've spoken a lot to the folks at CSU and CU, and the, you know, especially CSU is a land-grant university and has a very stellar reputation as an agriculturally focused university. And CU, of course, also has you know, excellent engineering, aerospace engineering. They have a growing robotics engineering community and professors who are doing really interesting things there in their labs. Bingo! So it seems that Colorado has all the ingredients to make major industries like HVAC and ag tech thrive. But what about smaller businesses? You know, like the ones that are maybe just you and a partner pursuing a shared dream. To learn more, I spoke with Ashley Tendall, founder of Soul Bean Roasters, which is a small batch coffee roasting company operating out of Fort Collins, Colorado. As a former barista, Ashley saw an opportunity to marry her passions for coffee and the environment into a green business venture. I was trying to think of ways to incorporate my background in operational management and environmental sustainability with, you know, my passion of coffee. And I sort of just got completely absorbed in the whole world of coffee and learning everything I could about coffee beans, the whole story, the whole journey that a coffee bean takes. And I wanted to be involved in every step of the supply chain from farm to cups. Most coffee shops get their beans from a roaster. Roasters, the one that sources the coffee and roasts the green coffee that they get from the farm. I realized I didn't want someone else to roast my coffee. I wanted to roast the coffee. I can't think of a single adult human being I know who doesn't have some degree of passion for coffee. But on the other hand, I can't think of too many coffee lovers who give a second thought to how wasteful their daily coffee run can be. So where did Ashley's passion for sustainability come from? I come from a family of 12, but it was always like, you don't eat your food. You're not going to get to eat. <laughs> and so there was a lot of emphasis on not having waste. I hate waste. I'm a huge outdoor person. I love the environment. I love nature. And it just made sense to sort of synthesize all these loves into my business model. And tell me, Ashley, what does that look like in practice? We utilize our excess waste to make other products. So running a coffee business, there's lots of excess coffee grounds and coffee shafts. So we utilize that to make other products like soaps and incense and doing research and development to learn how we can make other items as well. I've seen coffee scrubs and coffee soaps, but coffee incense? I'll take 12, please. That sounds like a great addition to my normal rotation of cedar, pine, and rose incense. Mmm. But is a zero-waste coffee roaster technically a green business? Paula, what do you think? What's interesting about a coffee roaster like this one is that they've decided that zero waste is their holy grail. That's what they're going for. And that's a passion-driven approach. We don't want our company to be leaving behind waste. And there's a tremendous benefit to the environment. You need energy to roast coffee. And so there's a trade-off there, no doubt. But the fact that the company's objective is to produce a quality product as efficiently as possible and then take all the nasty waste products and use them as well, that's virtuous. So for a small operation that retains one employee, plus Ashley's husband, how hard was it to get her coffee roasting business off the ground? 
it, it was actually very easy to get going. The small business association that they have here in Colorado is great. It's very friendly. They have ways that you can enter into becoming a business without becoming a full-on industrial business. You can be a cottage food industry and get going from your home. PSA alert. For all you listeners out there with an idea for a new product, business, or service that could help save the environment, I beg you, do not give up on it. Whether it's saving energy, repurposing coffee beans, or assembling an army of crop-picking robots, the sky's the limit. And speaking of that sky, we've yet to discuss one of the state's peak industries. So stick around, because after the break, we'll be hitching a gondola up into the Rockies to visit Colorado's world-renowned ski resorts. If you're curious about green jobs, good news. Working Nation has even more content for you to dive into. Alicia Clark here, producer of Work Green, Earn Green, and I'm excited to share that a new edition of our video series, I Want That Job, is available now. Each episode features careers that are in high demand and help save the environment, like construction managers, geologists, and some others that may surprise you. So be sure to check them out. Subscribe now to the Working Nation YouTube channel and follow the hashtag GreenJobsNow. Welcome back. To get everyone up to speed, before the break, we heard from entrepreneurs about how Colorado has provided fertile ground for green businesses to plant seeds and take root. Now, if I've learned one thing from watching way too many episodes of Shark Tank over the years, it's that entrepreneurs must be willing to take on a significant amount of risk in order to succeed. And as I came to find out, in Colorado, that risk is assumed not only by small businesses, but by major ones as well, most notably the ski business. And the risks I'm talking about here aren't the ones you take when deciding to check out that double diamond. To help with my point, let's look at Aspen Skiing Company, a titan in the ski resort industry. The company is comprised of four mountains as well as hotels and restaurants. But over the last 25 years, Aspen has been undergoing a major transformation from a skiing company to an environmental company. To find out exactly what that means, I spoke with Aspen's SVP of sustainability and revolutionary climate activist, Auden Schindler. When I came in, so 23 years ago, the ski resort sort of had the reputation as the 800-pound gorilla in town. It had a history of battling environmental groups, whether it was about ski resort expansion or water use out of Snowmass Creek. So when we started this work, sustainable business was defined as greening your company. And that ranged from reducing energy in your buildings, things like that, that addressed essentially your own impact. And I now believe that if you really care about sustainability, you have to think about ways that your company can meaningfully move the needle on large systemic problems, primarily climate change. When it comes to climate change, that is one seriously big needle that needs to move. But Aspen is a heavyweight, and Auden isn't exactly someone you'd call risk adverse. One of our strategies has always been to do something that's so weirdly progressive and expensive that no one could possibly doubt your intent. Very early on in the development of the solar industry in Colorado, we decided to invest in a utility-scale solar farm in partnership with a high school in Carbondale. 
It was a million dollar investment, but we did it because we wanted to make a statement. We wanted to help grow the solar industry in the region, and we wanted to get proof of concept on the ground for these bigger projects. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. And for a juggernaut like Aspen, when they throw their weight around, real shift begins to take place. We're able to role model solutions and maybe get business people into new technology in a way that wouldn't necessarily happen. And we just built a a four-story employee housing building that was all electric. And it uses these new heat pump technologies. So contractors are getting the skill of the future and they're getting to test it out and learn it with us on our dime. And they're going to be more ready for the upcoming trend. One of the challenges right now is there aren't enough mechanical engineers, installers, heating and ventilation technicians who can install this technology. In the past, it was keep this building's heating system running no matter what. But the new skill set is how can you optimize these things and then how can you upgrade them appropriately? Auden, man, I know just the guy you should talk to. Hit me up after the show and I will connect you with Matt Salee. Modaly will hook you up. But beyond greening buildings, I wanted to know what other job transitions are taking place at Aspen. What about the seasonal workers whose jobs are more closely linked to the slopes? We've had snowmobile mechanics in-house who grew up on snowmobiles. And they sort of took us through the dirty two-stroke snowmobiles to the new cleaner four-strokes. And the next thing they'll be doing is they'll be working on electric snowmobiles. So their skill set has had to evolve. And some of that can happen in-house, but we're also going to need to hire those people from outside. Come on. Who wouldn't want to spend a winter in Aspen while making some green? Well, as it turns out, climate change is making that gig less and less appealing. We've warmed about three degrees Fahrenheit since 1980, and you're seeing these squeezed seasons and less days of winter. The struggle is this inability to retain workers. The big challenge is that it's difficult to, with certainty, start your season. You hire a bunch of snowmakers, a bunch of waiters, and a bunch of lift ops so they can start working on Thanksgiving. Well, it's hot as it was this year. They're not getting a paycheck. Well, they're going to leave. And to give you an idea on the number of workers that affects... For winter sports alone, the state generates 43,000 jobs and $2.5 billion in economic value that's added to the economy. That was Mario Molina, executive director of Protect Our Winters, a nonprofit striving to turn outdoor enthusiasts into climate activists. Rocky Mountain states receive about 25% of skier visits during the month of March. So loss of a March snowpack has big impacts on the economy of these mountain communities without necessarily having compensatory increases in winter visitation. To be honest, I never thought about the impact a shorter winter season would have on local businesses tied to seasonal tourism and the thousands of workers employed by hotels, restaurants, and resorts whose lifestyles and livelihoods depend on winter sports. For Mario, it's not just about lost business. Well, I've been teaching my three-year-old daughter to ski this winter, and it is one of the most amazing activities you share with your kid. It's not a grown-up sport. It's not a kid's sport. It's an everybody's sport. And I want to see us be able to pass this legacy on to our children. 
And so my hope is that it's not only that we can protect these sports, my hope is that we can use the passion that people have for these sports to motivate real legislative policy level action that leads to a mitigation scenario that, that allows us to preserve the sports, but also preserves the stability that we rely on. And the only way that can happen is if we do more and do better. Well, as this episode comes to a close, I am pleased to award the state of Colorado with the gold medal for their past efforts, current ambitions, and future goals for transitioning into the green economy. It is clear to me that Colorado has drafted a green print for success, and the plan aims to include as many of its residents as possible, which is commendable because as we've learned, it isn't easy being green. No state is doing it perfectly, and we all have plenty of room to improve, but hats off to Colorado. And that's a wrap. Howdy. Ah, Thanks for listening to another episode of Work Green, Earn Green, and for joining me on a green job exploration of Colorado. As always, I hope you learned something new and had some fun. Be sure to join me on the next episode when I'll be racing through the rice fields of Arkansas. And I gotta do it, sending a sweet, friendly reminder to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can leave comments, questions, and reviews on Apple. I love reading your feedback. And share, share, share with your friends, family, countrymen, anyone you think might be interested in green jobs. And finally, be sure to visit WorkingNation.com to find additional content on green jobs. Later days. This podcast is produced by Alicia Clark and executive produced by Melissa Panzer, Joan Lynch, and Art Bilger. It's written by Jay Tipton and Mike Zunick. Edited and sound mixed by Linz Florin. Talent producer is Emily LaLuce. Associate producer is Eve Bilger. Music is by Avocado Junkie. And this podcast is made possible by the Walton Family Foundation.